So you're thinking of it from the perspective of how do we replace humans. The quantitative, at least machine learning stuff, the purpose is not to replace humans. It's to make them do things faster. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Nelson Lynn. Nelson is a successful real estate investor. He's done a ton in real estate. We're going to talk about that. But today we're focusing on quantitative finance and machine learning in real estate. If you don't know what those two things mean, don't worry. We're going to define those for you. But then we dig deeper with Nelson and learn about how big investors are applying machine learning to their real estate portfolios to help them make better decisions. What does that mean? What kind of data are they working with? And what maybe mistakes can they avoid through applying human knowledge to their machine learning algorithms? Great conversation today. Nelson is a very smart, very talented guy, very experienced, and he gives some very rounded explanations of what these complex topics mean. We also touch on the hot thing of today, chat GPT. What does it mean or is it a little overblown as to what it's doing? in the uh, real estate space, what the what the potential it has to do in the real estate space and extrapolate it into other industries. Such a great conversation today. Nelson is a wealth of knowledge. You're going to learn a ton. I know I did. So much great knowledge. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investments. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're enjoying the show and you're an Apple Podcast user, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, we're talking with Nelson Lin, digging into quantitative finance and machine learning in real estate. So much knowledge, new technology, very exciting. Any further ado, let's go. Nelson, thanks so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you're doing in real estate now and rewind us and tell us how you got there? Yeah, I do three different things within the real estate community. I run a group called South Asian Real Estate, we're about 20,000 members, but we also have several meetups and multiple cities. And we also have an annual conference now with like 400 people attendees. I also run a real estate fund, Settle Asset Management. And so we have about 35 million that I'm sponsoring and a, you know, a few million more that I'm a co-sponsor for. And then finally, I consult data science and machine learning for commercial real estate hedge funds. My biggest client being Brookfield Asset Management, which is a large real estate company in the world. So Awesome. That's great. You're totally killing it. We've been chatting here for almost the last hour and it's such a small it's world. Yeah, it's been a great conversation so far. So let's talk about you want to talk about quantitative finance and machine learning and real estate. And I'd love to get like an update on kind of the state of the art in real estate today and, and what, what the big guys are applying to their businesses. But first off, let's define those two terms, quantitative finance and machine learning, if you would. Right. So quantitative finance is, if you heard terminology for what a quant is, there's a lot of things that are gut feelings, for example, that people might invest in typically, but once you're handling larger amounts of money, it becomes more important to be analytical, prove things with numbers and leverage and de-risk your bets against each other. So for example, what does that mean? You might buy in a city because you know Austin is very popular. So you might throw money at that city knowing that everyone else is going there. But 
in the world of deleveraging risk, you have to compare and contrast that to the amount of, say, income that you generated based on wages. So if wages are going up half as, half as fast as prices are, you might ring some risk alarm bells and say, hey, the amount of valuation in this asset versus the fundamentals, they're starting to separate. And so you might use that as a way to maybe short a market in terms of volatility and risk. That being said, it's very hard to do. But in terms of quantitative finance, it, it's mostly using numbers and indices to like make your investment principles work and then scaling that across portfolios, metros, et cetera. And this mostly makes sense for people who own a lot of real estate in multiple markets who have a bunch of capital deployed. They usually want to place it in things that are more stabilized, which is not the typical syndicator class C 1970s apartment complex in the American Southwest, right? Or Sunbelt. These are typically more core products or in the single family space, they tend to be suburban single family homes outside of a large major urban core. Okay, great. Awesome. So now let's talk machine learning and, and what that means. Is this the, you know, Skynet developing in the real estate world to <laughs> come take us all down or is it, are we getting a little too deep there? Def define that for us. Right. So data, if you know, statistics, probability, that was kind of the previous or historically how we've done almost everything in the world. The way we think of numbers, probabilities, it was kind of back with a napkin. What's happened in the last decade is that computing has gotten cheaper and more impressive. And so now when you want to do math, you can do it at scale. And so machine learning is just, instead of figuring out how do I run a simple line through like a chart, right? So for example, you might have a classroom and in that classroom, you have the age versus the height. You can then compare and say like, well, it seems like there's a line. The older you get, the taller people get. But what happens if you have different populations, like for example, there's men and women in the same group. And then for some reason, people plateau at the age of 18 in terms of height growth. You know, then you need more descriptive statistics that are built by the machines and they run that algorithm and the algorithm built itself. Whereas in the past, it used to be, you took these numbers and you just threw a line, you saw what's the closest and best fitting line. Nowadays, it's somewhat similar, but it's not a straight line anymore. It's a complex like zigzag, or for example, there are these things called gradient boosted trees, which is if you live your life in a typical manner of today, I wake up, do I decide to brush my teeth or do I eat breakfast, right? Those are two branching paths that you can decide. In a complex gradient boosted tree model or random forest model, it's like, it could be many, many paths and those paths are self-determined to figure out how do I get optimal point in the day where I go to sleep feeling clean in my mouth or something like that. And so instead of what we used to do, which is create and set the standard or set the steps that we would take, we are now telling the numbers, talk to the machine and the machine builds the algorithm for itself. And so that's been a lot more popularized as computing gets cheaper and we have more amounts of data. So for example, someone like Brookfield, they might have 10,000 single family homes. That's a lot of data to work with. Maybe it's on a million images, like some of these other machine learning programs that have, that are able to identify cat, dog, human, et cetera. Working backwards, you can then use that existing data for say 10,000 homes and figure out where should rent be, right? That's what Zillow rent is, for example. That's what the Z estimates are, right? 
It's someone who is taking a bunch of numbers, reverse engineering that into an algorithm and using it to predict future problem sets on other properties that aren't just in the data that they use to train this machine learning model. Okay, great. So you mentioned there's quite a few things there. So quantitative finance being basically looking at the numbers and the big guys are really good at that. And they have a lot of data to sift through and then machine learning being kind of teaching machines how to figure out how to kind of decide for themselves or tell us how to get from point A to point B when point B is, you know, a certain degree of profitability or, or whatever. Yeah. Is it only rents, for example, that the big guys are looking at or all they, are they also looking at areas where to buy asset classes to focus on maintenance schedules, you know, other things around that? Or is, have they really gotten to that point of sophistication yet? Yes and yes. How do I know? Because I'm building them. So the hardest part for a lot of these companies is getting the data organized. A lot of real estate companies that I've helped consult for, they tend to still use Excel sheets, for example. And so the bigger companies in particular are now moving over towards software systems that use databases that, for example, they might still use relational databases like SQL. Those might be like decades old technology, but you can start using those to churn out information and data. And I can clean them a lot faster than I can if I were to use a bunch of Excel sheets, for example. If I were to get a bunch of Excel sheets, I would have to program my own script to re-clean and repopulate that information and then push that out. So that's something I've done, for example, with my OMs. Whenever I get, you can write a Python script that just scrapes the table so that you don't have to copy paste it constantly, for example, when you're doing underwriting. You know, it's small stuff like that, where if you learn to program, you can save yourself a lot of time. But even, you know, things where you're scraping and copying tables, that's a machine learning algorithm on the back end that you might not see. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So I can see, you know, some of the, some of the utility here, but I wonder like at what point we've talked about the, the real big guys out there, obviously they have the scale to utilize systems like this and hire folks like yourself to, to build systems. At what point in a company's kind of growth and evolution, real estate companies of growth and evolution. Can it make sense to start employing these, uh, these technologies in their business and you have really enough scale to, right. to justify it? The moment you have enough money to afford one, typically. So I'll give an example. A lot of the times when you're thinking about cost cutting and how much you can reduce things by one project we're working on, for example, is leasing and how much can we push and increase revenues by even like a two and a half percent change in the Delta because you've shifted the algorithm, you know, on a company that earns a billion dollars a year, you do the math, right? And so that ends up driving revenues significantly higher and eventually so do your profit margins. And so it really comes down to, do you have enough data to justify it? And if you were to hire somebody, could you take advantage of the new, could you take advantage of the new data? So if you are a fund that specifically focuses in say Austin, Texas, there's no point necessarily analyzing data in every other city that exists. You're not going to raise money for other markets, right? And so that is something that people do. And at the end of the day, you can actually hire somebody now to do that. If you're exploring the next market, you don't need necessarily a bunch of private internal data. You already have census information. You already have things like neighborhood scout that you could use to figure out what might be good markets and submarkets that I could follow. Okay. Okay. So one of the things that I wonder about when we talk about applying technology to an industry that hasn't really evolved is that 
it, it's a matter of garbage in, garbage out, and training these things correctly. And when do we or folks in the space really focus on applying intuition over what the algorithm tells us? And I'll give you an example of what I mean. We could conceive of a situation where our data set and our analysis tells us, ultimately tells us that we can get hundreds of dollars more in per month in rent by having a dishwasher. Now, that might be true, but there might be other factors involved in the the actual, you know, reality boots on the ground, the tenant experience of renting in our properties. And we might say by looking at it that, yeah, that might not make sense. Our intuition doesn't lead us to conclude that. So how are you kind of drawing a line between what the algorithm tells us versus what you know, just just kind of human experience might indicate, if that makes sense. So you're thinking of it from a perspective of how do we replace humans? The quantitative, at least machine learning stuff, the purpose is not to replace humans. It's to make them do things faster. So for example, I know at Brookfield and a lot of these other firms, all acquisitions is done by a single team. You might have 20 people looking across thousands of homes, you know, across the country a day, right? And so how do you speed those analysts up. How do you get them faster? You give them an estimate. And then they might take the estimate and say, this is bull crap. So you take that information, you feed it back into the machine, improves the algorithm for the next time you come out. And so the machine learning, the algorithm should not be a hundred percent reliable. If it is, that means you are overfit on some data likely, or you are trying to replace people too early, which is not necessarily the smartest thing to do. How do I know this? Look what happened to Zillow when they try to rely too much on their algorithm. I think in real estate in particular, it is still people first. It is still intuition first, but you might not want someone to reanalyze comps from scratch every single time they look at a building, especially if it's not always in the same neighborhood, particularly when you're a large single family home fund, right? And so you're just speeding up their process. Zillow might have something, but Zillow isn't the most accurate as most people know you're most accurate when you have a large source of your own internal data, data that people would pay very handsomely for if they could get access to it. And so that's where a lot of these funds are starting to outperform and outcompete their other competitors. You have a data set that's not publicly accessible. You have to work hard to either, you know, scrape it from somebody else or, you know, take it from Zillow. But the problem with Zillow is you have imperfect garbage and garbage out data, right? When you have Zillow, you're talking about renting as either a large landlord out to a building, you could also be talking about mom or pop landlord who's going to double the rent because they think they can do it. And someone might be dumb enough to like put a bid in, or they like cut in half because they're like, oh, I just want someone to fill my, my space that I like. Right. And so the problem with that is Zillow has to take the whole range of everything that's possible. Whereas in a professionally managed company that has a single leasing team all in one city in the United States you can end up out-competing those, or you, you'll end up maximizing rent more likely compared to a smaller mom and pop, you know, retail shop. And so that to me is why a lot of these companies are able to outperform. Not only are they vertically integrated, scaled up and well-funded, they tend to have the ability to like optimize. And that's where it really comes down to. The optimization, you can really buy it at any point. It's just a question of, do you have enough capital to deploy given, you know, whatever issues it might come come around. Brookfield, for example, just raised another $17 billion fund in this market, right? And so it's stuff like that where it, you know, they have plenty of money to deploy on, on different projects. And so whatever they hire is a small fraction of 
their total capacity to generate income. So interesting. Okay. So these days, uh, kind of probably everybody, all of our listeners have heard it by now. Everybody's talking about AI, chat GPT, yeah. these these large language models, I think they are. And we're going to rapidly get out outside of my area of technical expertise. Yeah. But do you see a, a, a big impact on the way of these large language models that you can really communicate with on like the machine learning capabilities that are within real estate? Or is it is it kind of overblown at this point? There's two parts to it. It is the same thing as I was mentioning earlier. It's not going to totally replace people, but it is going to make their job move a lot quicker, right? The other problem with ChatGPT, at least with 3.5, which is what most people encountered, was that it has this problem with remembering history and you can fundamentally shift it because the large language models are built on pattern recognition rather than, say, going to going and uh, being very concrete and certain about their they're the true value. That's why you can say, what's two plus two? And you can convince chat GPT the answer is six, right? And they're very confident that it's six afterwards, because it, again, it's like a language model that's built on patterns. If you don't know what transformers are, that's the T in chat GPT. That's the base model that came out, I think, five, six years ago. And so to see it progress so quickly is immense, but that only gives you an idea of what's going to come in the future. And the thing with transformers is that it's better at shifting attention to different items in the works. The way we used to do things with language modeling is that we would say, like, here's a paragraph. And then you might say, okay, it was a very dumb model. So for example, naive Bayes is this simple spam filter that we teach that most people teach as like a basis to understanding classification. So you have a sentence that says, I am a Nigerian prince. Please give me mine. If you see that in an email, you contextually understand that within the context of the whole email, you're like, this is probably fake. And so what it does is then it pulls certain words and assigns a value based on the number of times that it sees this email spam versus not spam. So you see the word Nigerian and prince, boom, it's like 90% spam. If it doesn't have that word there, then you know it gets better. And so the problem is you're only looking at individual words. You're not looking at them in relationship to each other, right? You're not looking at the context of the paragraph or a sentence. You're only looking at what value does this word hold on its own? And with the transformers and these like larger scale models, it takes the word you know, Nigerian and now you can replace it with another word, but you could say, hey, I am a prince from Saudi Arabia. And you would say, oh, well, I can understand that in context, the relationship with the whole word, it's still a foreign prince or a foreign royalty that has, you know, is trying to embellish their requisites and then request more money within the context of the rest of the email. And I think like the main reasoning behind that, the, the reason why everyone thinks ChatGPT is amazing is because these transformers have gotten really good at developing and understanding context. And so the interpretation is really what's made these models better than what they used to be in the past. So, okay. But it sounds like that you don't expect that new development technologically to impact the machine learning abilities within real estate when it comes to, say, sorting large data sets to determine what should our rents be or maybe what amenities should we look at adding or where should we look to invest? You don't expect a big impact there. I actually do expect a big impact. We are currently adding in more features ourselves into our models, but it really depends on 
it, it won't reduce the number of people working on the job, but it will increase the speed at which and the accuracy of which these algorithms are going to be able to analyze what should the rent be. So for example, a lot of listings will include information that has contextual information on how much rehab the building needs. Hey, this building's from 1970, but now it also has, you might say like in the conversation, TLC or needs, needs a little love, right? That's context that should go into analyzing what the value of a building should be or how much rent you can charge. And so listing information is going to be pretty crucial for, for things like that. And uh, I think there's kind of an understanding that, well, we're already building more features and a lot of them are derived from this chat GBT. And so I guess the question that you're asking is, will this affect how businesses operate hundred percent? Will this reduce the number of people possibly, but they're not going to be entirely replaced. They're likely what's going to happen is they just won't hire as many people as they did in the past, or they'll only scale up because now they can do things faster and more accurately. Right. And it goes both ways. Interesting. Okay. So I also wonder really from my own perspective, how can those of us who, you know, we hire a third-party property management, our properties are larger. We're using pretty expensive piece of software to help manage our properties and set rents and everything, yardy, what have you. Are those guys using these particular models to, to help us set our rental rates to determine what our rental rates should be, or are they not quite there yet in terms of the level of sophistication? Yeah, not necessarily. So the way at least Shiardi works, they have a metric for determining like vacancy versus where rent should be charged. But that's more based on the demand supply. It's actually not that complex of an algorithm. It's just more based on like, you know, for that building, what does it look like? There is some comparison to the market, but from my, I think I read the white paper a while back. It's really just based on basically the volatility of how much you charge versus where rent should be. It all depends on how that building itself performs. It doesn't really look too much at the outer context beyond that. And so that to me is something I would say like perhaps you can improve on. But in terms of chat GPT, I can't imagine that they are, they should be doing something with that. I just haven't seen anything on the horizon yet in terms of these like large property management companies and what they're pushing for. Typically, whenever I see any new white papers or data science product that comes out of these large property management companies, they tend to be things that the industry, at least outside of real estate, has been doing like a decade ago. And it doesn't really improve much, which is why you haven't really heard of like a killer real estate software app in a long time. And I don't blame them. People who have data just aren't going to share it. And the only way to really build large machine learning models is you need a lot of data. And so it's really just like a handful of large firms who have access that are willing to share it. The problem is if I were, I don't know, a large real estate company, I said, Hey, I'm going to start taking your data to trade models. Those large landlords might be like, Hey, whoa, 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 what are you doing? You're going to share competitor data, you know? And so that I think is one of the biggest problems for these companies that are supposed to be stewards for your information. If they were to try to sell it and then package it and like push it somewhere else, then you start running into issues with privacy and ownership data. And so that's my main understanding of why I haven't necessarily seen it in much of these. But if you are curious, CoreLogic is probably the largest data provider out of any company I know who is willing to sell information. And anytime you sign up for CoreLogic, you, they like make you sign away your rights and stuff. And so <laughs> I can, I would say if you reach out to them, I think we're paying them like 10K a month or something crazy just for their data feeds. But they would probably be the best 
use case I can think of to get insider information from your competitors. Otherwise, you would hire a software programmer to just scrape and take data. And it's not that hard. My brother did in the afternoon. We have like a script that scrapes from apartments.com and it pulls it in like a minute for a whole like MSA. So nice. And then you can Very play cool. around well, on Excel. Very cool. Well, I'm excited to see what the future brings in this way. But I think my opinion is, you know, as ChatGPT kind of gets more popular, it's getting a little overblown as to, you know, are the machines yeah. currently taking over? Elon's a little freaked out about that. Might be a little while. I'm not too worried about it. But anyway, yeah. right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com, scroll down to the Stessa logo, and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, Nelson, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Definitely my first property. It was a quadplex. I renovated it one at a time. And then as I went through the units, I really learned how much I hated property management and doing swapping out toilets. And after that, I figured the only way to really get beyond that is to scale. And so that's that kind of led me to like raising a fund. And then that fund now keeps me afloat but I make other income as well, doing different activities within the real estate space and opening a restaurant. That's That's been a little hectic as well. Man, awesome. You have a lot going on. So we had the best investment, that first deal, because you learned a very important lesson from it. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Worst investment I ever made, let me think, is this, I mean, the, the people you say crypto or something here? <laughs> you could say whatever you want. I think the worst investments I've ever made were buying FOMO into crypto. I was probably a teenager, so like honestly, between like when the first crypto rise happened, I think I sank like a few thousand dollars into it, and I definitely lost the super majority of it. And then I sold when it hit the bottom. And so buying into the first crypto bump when it first started hitting all the news waves, I think it was like when it hit ten thousand or something. So. That was probably my worst investment. And so what I learned from that is buy low, sell high, and also always take the long-term horizon. So Makes a lot of sense. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Do your own research. Always find data to prove your points. I think trusting other people for their word at their mouth is usually not the best option. And then the other thing that comes with that is when the crowd is moving one direction, it is often beneficial to go on the other, right? And so I've seen that play out well for me more than once. In particular, right now, it's a down market. I started buying and spending more money on acquisitions than I ever have in the past. Um, so when everyone was talking about, here's how you find deal flow in a hot market, I kind of took a back burner a little. And now that it's shifted, I'm like, how do I learn more? How do I actively pursue these deals? So. Nice. Makes a lot of sense. Well, Nelson, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing all this knowledge. It's been a great conversation. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, 
Where can they track you down? Yeah, I am on Palace, P-A-L-L-A-S-S. And they sponsor a lot of our events as a quick disclaimer for South Asian real estate, but that's a way to contact GPs, find value from that. And then subtleassets.com is my website. If you're curious about investing and how to like use data or invest in a product that uses quantitative data to, to, to acquire assets. Right now, my personal fund, we've done 35 million that we're sponsoring and we're about to refinance almost out of all of them in the last two years because we didn't acquire anything in 2022. That was just a year where interest rates were too high and things didn't really make sense. And so everything we bought in 2021, though, we're about to do an almost full refile on every project. That being said, those are probably the two best places to find me, Palace or SubtleAssets.com. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.